Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. Here on MediaPath, we try to curate your free time. Life is complicated enough without you having to scroll through endless new media selections. You don't have time. Maybe you're trying to drive back from Burning Man. You don't have time. So we're here to be your cherry pickers in chief. And if any of you listeners have dreamt of a career in writing for television, don't even delude yourself into thinking you can make it happen until you read our guest book today. He's Jeff Melvoin, a writer, a producer, an educator. He's written and produced hundreds of hours of television, and he's the author of a terrific new book called Running the Show, Television from the Inside. It's his personal experiences in writing and producing television. It's a reality check. It's a how-to checklist for anyone ready to launch into a TV career. Jeff will be with us in just a few minutes. Wheezy? Fritz, um, I said look immediately to your right. Jeff is already with us. That's him right there. Right. Yeah. But he'll be talking after I talk about the Beanie Baby. And what, what is your selection? This? I oh, it's, yeah. okay. it's called The Beanie Bubble, loosely based on a book by Zach Bissonette called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. The Beanie Bubble is on Apple TV, and it stars Zach Galifianakis as Ty Warner, the person behind the Beanie Baby craze which gripped our nation in the 90s. Or is he? This film tells the story of the three women whose energy and ingenuity propelled Beanie Babies onto millions of American beds, bookshelves, car dashboards, and cubicles. Two of these women were love interests. One had children who added invaluable input. One was an ingenious intern whose early online acumen, clever tag poetry, and manufactured scarcity concepts were fishers of beanie collectors. Ty Warner's one true gift was cultivating associations with brilliant and devoted women and keeping them close enough to use but far enough to hoard the credit and the empire. He never married either girlfriend. Thus, they got nothing. The intern was kept on an hourly salary. What ultimately happens when loyalty flows in only one direction? Why is it called a bubble? Here is Ty Warner's statement about this version of history. He actually finally spoke to the press about this film. He said, the movie is by its own admission, partly fiction. But like the filmmakers, I am in the business of dreams and I admire their creative spirit. He also thinks he's much more handsome than Zach Galifianakis and that he should have been played by Daniel Day-Lewis or Warren Beatty. So in Santa Barbara, this movie played in theaters because Ty Warner owns hundreds of coastal acres in Montecito on which he's planted vegetation from throughout the world. It's entirely secluded. You just see the giant trees that block your view of the opulence. Folks who read about him in town may think that his middle name is Ty and that his first name is Reclusive Billionaire. That is how he is usually mentioned. He owns a bunch of hotels in town, including the gorgeous and legendary Biltmore, which remains shuttered post-pandemic due to a labor dispute between Ty and the Four Seasons that has dramatically impacted 450 employees. This stubborn, recalcitrant, narcissistic behavior tracks with Zach's portrayal in the film. And may I add that I would be honored to have Zach portray me in a film he is quite lovely so if you're interested in delving further into the beanie baby history there is a really cool podcast it's an episode of a podcast called you're wrong about with sarah marshall and jamie loftus which fully explores ty's parasitic relationship with the women in his life nice Mm -hmm. i would have never watched that without your recommendation I, I found couldn't it believe they made a movie about beanie babies right it's more than about stuffed animals it's about i hope so it's about so much that's a long 90 minutes 
All right. Well, as you know, I love music documentaries. Yeah. Here's one streaming now on MGM+. Plus. It's San Francisco Sounds, A Place in Time. It's a two-part series. A look at the musical and artistic renaissance that happened in the Bay Area from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. It's about the seminal groups that grew their roots in San Francisco and later blossomed into the acts that dictated a global music trend. Bands like Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Steve Miller, Janis Joplin, with and without Big Brother and the Holding Company, Country Joe and the Fish, Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, Tower of Power, Doobie Brothers, Creedence, Clearwater Revival. And they use a recent documentary trick of doing voiceovers without showing the video of the actual people speaking, which kind of adds to the mystique. This movie was done by the same folks that did another outstanding film about music called Laurel Canyon, about the same time period. What allowed all the groups to coalesce into solid music units is that they all lived in their own houses, everybody under the same roof. It was like a freestanding musical commune, many of them all in the hate. This was a time when music was free and experimental, and as you listen to the tracks, you realize that many wouldn't even have gotten played on the radio or streaming now. They were so sort of freewheeling and experimental. And this was about more than the music. It was a social experiment going on in the Bay Area. Lots of drugs were taken, not to numb your mind, but to expand your mind. It looks at Bill Graham, the iconic music promoter that ran the Fillmore, which was the epicenter for all this new music. And you get to feel the upheaval in America that touched off this whole counterculture mindset. With Vietnam in full rage, it was youth looking for a newer, better way. At the end of the movie, you realize that what filled the air, even more than the pot smoke, was a fuzzy, warm naivete. All the lofty and pure ideals born in that time and that place through music and social experimentation are depressingly different from the world in which we find ourselves today. Beautiful music, great piece of music history, San Francisco Sounds, A Place in Time. Right. I, I, I watched the first episode last night and at the, it gets to that point where we'll call it the bubble bursting, which in this case is too many people finding out about it. You know, so they would they they heard about they heard about it at the uh, at the big music festival Monterey Pop, and then up they come, and now it's like, oh my god, this place is too crowded, which makes me feel like maybe there there should be some version of this in every town that that folks are attracted to this kind of creativity and this kind of like open mindedness and spirit of. Com- and here's the arc of commercialism. Mm-hmm. As soon as all that music started to get famous and it became the top 20 of the top 40 playlist then it became commercial and then people just sought it out to be you know to stand next to the flame and then it went downhill i think they were just pissed at their parents and they needed well, yeah, a destination that was, the, that was the point of the whole thing oh yeah yeah, yeah. i'm so happy to uh introduce our talented guest today jeff melvoin this man has written and produced some of the most noteworthy shows in television history remington steel and hill street blues and northern exposure picket Fences with a great David E. Kelly, Alias with a great J.J. Abrams, Designated Survivor and others around 470 hours of television. He also founded the Writers Guild of America's Showrunner Training Program and the Writers Education Committee. He taught at Harvard. He's written a terrific book, too. It's his personal experiences getting started and staying relevant in the television landscape. It's practical ways to get a job as a television writer and it's tips on how to work your way up the ladder to show runner from pitch 
to the bleeding ulcers. It's all there in one book. <laughs> it's called Running the Show, Television from the Inside, Jeff Melvoin. Happy to have you here, Jeff. Thanks. Delighted to I, be here. I love this book. It was so good for those of us that are, have been on the periphery of this business our whole lives. But let's start off talking about the elephant in the room, Writers Guild strike. Can you give us any update? What are you hearing? What's the What's the... I don't have any insight beyond what's generally available, but I, I think we're still in it for uh, for the long haul. I, I don't think there's any ongoing talks going on right now, but I've never seen the Guild more resolved, and SAG also has been very inspiring in that regard. This is my fourth strike, yes. and uh, and the, the word existential has been applied to it, and it really is. Uh, what's at stake here is, is an entire method of how we created television. And there's other issues, of course, but but that to me is one that's nearest and dearest, is the whole concept of uh, having a writing staff using a writer's room. These are things that were never in any contract. Every three years, we negotiate what's known as the MBA, the Minimum Basic Agreement with the AMPTP. And uh, there was never any need to specify that you needed writers and a room to write a show. It was just assumed. Um, now it's no longer assumed. I think uh, something showed up in this strike. I've been a few of, uh, through a few in this town as well. And something that showed up on this that really drives the point home is some of the stars who are, you know, some of the most noteworthy stars have decided to publish their residual checks on uh, on social media. And people are flabbergasted at how little, because every, they think everybody in show business makes a boatload of cash. And, and you know, I made $2.40 for my, you know, Perry Mason rerun <laughs> 25 years later. You know what I mean, though? But that's really, it, it, it's it's eye-opening. People, people, civilians have no concept of how close to the line, particularly just staff writers and below-the-line people make on these shows. That's right. I think one of the best examples is what's happened with the Suits on Netflix. Here's a show that was made in Canada, basic cable, uh, terrific show. In fact, Aaron Korsh went through the show in her training program. Oh, wow. L- lovely guy. And, uh, and they did their eight seasons. And then it got scooped up by Netflix, and they're making nothing. And not only are they not making anything, but Netflix is not compelled to reveal any figures. But the whole idea of divorcing performance from compensation is what the streamers have gotten away with. They've kind of gotten outside of the regulatory shield uh, that's protected us for such a long time. So they can pretty much do whatever the market will bear. Or keeping people in the dark as to how successful or popular their their content or their product is. They won't tell showrunners how well they They never give the algorithms. They never give the compilation of figures. They're all like that. This is naive. So this question is bonkers. So just smack (laughs) me. But remember when United Artists started? It was Charlie Chaplin. I wasn't around, but I have read about it. You remember. You know, you two college boys. Okay. So what about if the writers or the the showrunners created their own streaming platform and just bypassed all of this other crazy bloated crap and just got because we now have the technology to get content directly to folks who have any kind of television capabilities yeah, in, in theory it's not bonkers but in reality it's bonkers because okay. of the money involved and yeah. uh, and uh, all the things that you have to go through all the steps but 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 the the next best thing is why don't we have a union and kind of stand together and say we won't we won't stand for this. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. And that's what you're doing. Yes. And, and what's counterintuitive to the producer's approach is that people connect to certain figures on a show. So 
sometimes, not all the time, it's always the writing. It's all about what's on the page. But sometimes a particular character, a particular person is part of the draw of the show, yet they have literally no power in making these decisions. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that has changed a bit in, in recent times. I find that the number one on the call sheet, the, the lead of the show, uh, you used to have um, what would be pretty much vanity credits if you were an executive producer. That would mean, okay, we're going to give you the title, but you're really not invited into conversation. My last few experiences with bona fide stars like Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Sandra O, oh, Jodie Comer, um, they want a place at the table. They want to get their notes in. So that is changing somewhat, but but we're all reduced to uh, pawns in, in the game that's being played right now, no matter who you are, because the studios uh, and the platforms hold the upper hand in these streaming areas. I will say that broadcast and legacy media has taken a beating in all sorts of ways, but I will say this, since I grew up in that system and owe a lot to that system, as do many of the people that are the leading streamer people. David Chase worked on uh, Rockford Files. Uh, Matt Weiner worked in half Hour Comedy. Vince Gilligan worked on The X-Files and on and on and on. You know, we all came up through that system Broadcast knew what it was about. They know what it's about. It's a business. There's discipline. There's calendars. There's budgets that you stick to. And there's a lot to be learned from that kind of discipline. And uh, and I've had experiences with streamers, and it uh, you're like in free fall. It, uh, you're almost begging for some sort of discipline to, to make your show within that. I will say that both of the Amazon projects I worked on never got to air, but that's not unusual. Um, the amount of money that's the blood on the floor, the money that's being wasted is incredible. And that's another thing about the strike, the disparity between the haves and the have-nots in many different ways. We're seeing it being played out across society right now. Across society. That's, I was going to make that parallel uh, observation that, yes, it's like the, there are a lot of people with most of the money. But define for us the term showrunner because we do not see it in the credits. So folks at home watching TV will be like, what? I don't see anyone with that title. It sounds like you're a gopher. You know, the title. And so it's de it's deceptive, but the showrunner is the guy. And you illustrate it beautifully in your book, the level of talent and responsibility required of, of this role. And so describe what a showrunner is. I mean, in essence, a showrunner makes all the creative decisions that go into the making of a television show in a conventional system, and certainly in the, at the apex of it, the broadcast system. The first time I can find that the word was ever used in a public forum was a 1995 article about John Wells, who's a magnificent uh, showrunner, when he was doing ER. And that, that article really went into uh, all the responsibilities and uh, and abilities that uh, John had. Um, it, it's it's changing somewhat in today's context, depending on uh, I, I see about four different business models that I won't go into. But the conventional broadcast model is on one end of the extreme. The streamer model, where you've got a uh, just to use as an extreme example, a feature director uh, who has more say in the way the show is going to run uh, than necessarily the showrunner or the Marvel experience, where they have all of this IP, this intellectual property, and the studio is going to take the upper hand. And in some ways, it's very reminiscent of. Um, the Hollywood movie studios before the breakup of uh, uh, the antitrust in in, in forty eight, mm -hmm. where they they held all the power. So there's different. There's there's a lot of convergence going on. There's a lot of disruption. But but to answer your question, the showrunner, you're right. It, you'll never see it because it's not a formal uh, title. It's an executive producer who has those functions. And and I will say, among the cognoscenti, among people in the business and people who follow the business, there is no higher title than showrunner. There is no more uh, aspirational goal than to be a showrunner, which 
can lead to problems because at its most extreme, at its apotheosis, people talk about it like the auteur theory in French cinema, which I think distorts the role of other people. And I think if you elevate the showrunner role beyond a certain point, um, you're giving too much credit to that individual. The best showrunners are the ones who spread praise and delegate well and recognize the value of collaboration. We're going to talk about the rungs on the ladder below showrunner and how you work your way up to that later because it's part of the great practical aspect of your book. But you mentioned John Wells, I think, was one of the producers of St. Elsewhere as well. Am I correct on that? Did he work on St. Elsewhere? Was he a writer? Was he? John didn't do Josh Brand and John Falsey did. They, they ended up creating then Northern Exposure. Uh, so uh. that was their show. John, um, John worked on a couple of shows. Uh, China Beach was one that he worked on before uh, ER exploded. And uh, what's what's interesting is that he pitched ER with Spielberg and Michael Crichton, and then when the show took off, it was in John's lap to keep it going. Yeah. Uh, but he had some pretty powerful partners. I just wanted to talk about NBC at that time, e- pre-ER and ER, but uh, Grant Tinker was the head of uh, the network then, and they did something that they don't do anymore. Grant Tinker had instinct about St. Elsewhere, and he had instinct about Hill Street Blues. And uh, he had the guts and the uh, intuition to allow them to grow, even though they weren't enormously successful at the start in the ratings. He said, no, this is going to grow. It's got to find an audience. So two, three, four years in, the thing finally found an audience and had some momentum. Now, if you have a show that doesn't is soft for two or three episodes, you're gone. Yeah, just just a, to a slight a slight correction there. It was Brandon Tartikoff who was at NBC at that oh. time. Grant was head of MTM, Mary right. Tyler Moore. He was married to Mary Tyler Moore at right. the time. But you're absolutely right about every one of Grant's instincts. He 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 allowed the writers to have their lead. His deal was, I'm not going to pay as much up front, but I'm going to give you back end, more back end. I'm not going to let you do what you want, and I'll fight your battles for you. I think he went on to NBC then after that, uh-huh. that period of time. But Brandon Tartikoff, I understand it was his wife, Lily, who actually kept um, uh, Hill Street on the air at the beginning because it was not doing anything in the ratings and then it won every Emmy in sight and they couldn't take it off the air at that point and it found its way um, but uh, but yeah now if you underperform you're, you're gone you're gone Two or three yeah. you have six rules that you lay out uh, early in your book and and a lot of reading your book is 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 advice for the specific job of showrunner but a lot of it is just across the board life advice about if being a good person, especially in leadership, the responsibility, you know, sharing credit, well, all these wonderful qualities that make for just a satisfying life in general. So your six rules are for writing are love, read, write, go to the theater, read plays, <laughs> get a liberal arts education. And have an unhappy childhood. And I think Fritz is right there. He's checking every box. So, Well, I'll congrats. tell you, the, 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 the most surprising bit of advice to me, well, you have the great bumper sticker of all time about careers and life and just the existential aspect of dealing with being on the planet, and that is show up. Shut up! I love that. That's such a good piece of advice. But but uh, but was, what was surprising to me was you said a liberal arts education. Everybody who comes in as an intern at NBC when I worked there was so proud of having gone to film school or something like that. You're saying film school is not what you want to do. Liberal arts is better. Get a smattering of all aspects of life. Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely a minority point of view, but I still 
believe in the value of a liberal arts education. You don't know where that stuff is going to lead. But if should you become a writer or any kind of creative individual, um, you need a well that you can go back to time and time again. And college or and, and grad school is the time to fill that well. And my, my point is that there's plenty of time to learn um, get on the job training to learn how the job is actually done. There's not a lot of time to read the people you want to read, to learn about subjects that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily be exposed to. And uh, and it's a leap of faith, but I, I believe that uh, it's it certainly worked, worked for me. And I, I understand the financial pressure on people, but, um, but I do think that, uh, to use an overword phrase from Joseph Campbell, following your bliss, I do think that within reason, that's what college should be about. And and I have a section on film school as as well, which I call Dumbo's Feather, which has to do with, gain, <laughs> with gaining the confidence. Yeah, tell to, the story to, of Dumbo's Feather. Well, I, I, I ran into I a, there was a terrific young woman who worked at Hill Street who was a production assistant. And uh, by a lot of standards, people would have thought, you're well on your way into a business, you know, you're into the business. And she wanted to write, and she asked me to write a letter to recommend her to USC, to grad school. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And you're already involved in the business. And she said, I just feel I, I, I need it. I wouldn't know what I wouldn't know otherwise. I, 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 I kind of just think I need it. And I said, oh, Dumbo's feather. And clearly she didn't understand what I was talking about. And, and in the movie Dumbo, um, through, through a kind of a drunken escapade, Dumbo, it's, it, Timothy the Mouse discovers that Dumbo can fly with his big ears. But Dumbo, when he wakes up, has no recollection of this. Um, so Timothy, trying to help his friend, uh, encourages him to believe it by giving him a feather that he holds in his trunk. And he says, this magic feather will help you fly. And so Dumbo then flies, and he believes that it's the feather that gives him that ability. And then at the climax of the film, when there's this big act in the big top uh, and uh, Dumbo's supposed to jump from the top of the uh, of the big top with uh, uh, with Timothy on his back um, the feather falls out of his trunk and as he begins to plummet to the earth Timothy's frantically yelling at him you don't need the feather you don't need the feather you can fly and Dumbo spreads his wings and he flies and it's a great moment I remember as a kid being so thrilled by that and that's what I felt Laurie's situation was is that um, you don't need the feather, go, but as long go. as you as long as you believe you do, then it's important. But then, then when I asked, her, I ran into her several years later, and I said, "Well, how did it go?" She said, "Well, I learned more in my first two weeks working on a sitcom uh, than I did in my two years at grad school, but I don't regret it." She said, "You know, uh, I, I felt I needed it, and it was about self confidence, and I mm-hmm. don't think there's any way to." Uh, uh, underestimate that. Plus, you collaborate on projects when you're in film school oh, and stuff, oh, so you have to learn that aspect of the business, too. But before you wrote for TV, you you were a print uh, journalist. That's right. You were a correspondent for Time magazine. Right. So did, did, did the writing for print, and that's like the news business, who, what, where, when, and why kind of writing, how did that translate into dialogue writing and character writing and plot writing? I mean, were you able to... Except for you have to learn how to use an economy of words. Right. But what about the two writing styles? Well, it's interesting. I think that the impact of group journalism, which is what time practiced at, the, at that time, you had a lot of correspondents in the field who would write long files that were then cut down by a writer in New York and then top edited by a senior editor. Um, to me, it was the process of doing a lot in a little bit of time that time had a great impact on me. Working in a in an atmosphere of excellence with great deadline pressure, that's what translated to TV. I felt immediately at home. I said, I know what this is about. The, the actual writing style, um, I didn't find as much translation. But 
the getting outside of the office, being used to the way I looked at journalism that way, especially being a time correspondent, is you're constantly being dropped behind enemy lines and trying to figure out what's going on. You'd go from city to city to city and come home with the story. That was very exciting, and I feel we have to do the same thing with episodes. But and it's storytelling, yeah, in a, in a different so, so it does have it does have that that, that in common. But the the lessons I, I mean, what's stranger uh, when people say, "Oh, you were a journalist," how did you become? Uh, a writer in television. Well, it's stranger is how I became a journalist because I spent all my time in high school in theater. My high school drama teacher was by far my biggest single influence. When I went to college, I uh, I did a lot of directing and then I studied playwriting. Robert Anderson, the playwright who wrote Tea and Sympathy and I Never Sang for My Father, um, was a great teacher of mine my senior year. Um, so how did I get to be a journalist was more because I wanted to make a living and see if I could make a living writing. And uh, uh, again, this goes back to the liberal arts education. I was a history and literature major. I wrote my thesis on American detective fiction because that was a subject that interested me and uh, had a great time doing that. And when it came time to submit a piece of work to be considered as a journalist, I used that as my writing sample, and it just turned out that at Fairchild Publications, the group that publishes Women's Wear and a bunch of other stuff, the editor in charge of their news service was a huge mystery fan. So he loved it. He hired me. I was a cub reporter in Washington, D.C. Three months later, they asked if I would be, become bureau chief of a one-man bureau in Miami. And I, asked him, I said, do you think I'm um, qualified? And they turned red. They said, do you think we'd offer to if you weren't qualified? I learned a very important lesson. You know, <laughs> Never, never uh, complain, never explain right <laughs> and uh, so I did that and then that led uh, to time through a through a, a series of misadventures well you contend there's a paradox to the showrunner so you contend that the qualities present in most writers loner brooding insecure selfish paranoid <laughs> impulsive indecisive are the polar opposite of those required of a showrunner which would be gregarious congenial secure generous trusting diplomatic and decisive. And I have found that this is true across the board in any field, that the skills and assets that allow one to excel individually do not overlap with leadership potential. So uh, great leaders are, are gifted and inclusive. Elaborate. Yeah, it's. I, I think that the qualities that often make good writers are diametrically opposed to that which makes good leaders, which just to say you can't, you can't cross. There are certain writers, though, for whom those qualities uh, of leadership just are very much harder to obtain or to per, to execute. And some of them, by dint of their writing, actually become showrunners and never really become terrific uh, managers. And as long as the writing keeps them on top, that's, that's fine. Um, but as soon as there's a drop of blood in the water, they're gone. Whereas, uh, and John Wells talks about this, uh, when we do the showrunner training program, he, he explains that, look, you can, most shows fail. And we're talking about also the broadcast universe. You know, most shows fail. But if you've done a good job of running it, you're going to get another shot. Because people say, hey, we, we, we liked working with Fritz, you know, and, and uh, let's, let's work together again. You can have a moderate success. And if you treat people poorly... Um, you're not going to get that shot or people aren't going to be as inclined to give you that shot. And so that's some of the stuff that we try to emphasize in, in the showrunner program. But I do think that because of the way we become writers and everybody comes, comes to it by a different method, but we're very, very focused on ourselves and very focused on our perceptions. And, and that's really important. And, and if you have the instinct for leadership at all, by opening a few books to you, by opening some windows on what it takes to be a good manager, by talking about Maslow and, and other principles of management and human behavior, um, if you've got the instinct for it, I think you just gobble it up. And uh, you know what I say in the in the in the showrunner program is this is not intended to be the the last word on showrunning. It's intended to be the first word. You know the education 
never stops. Well, you uh, talk about many ways to crack the nut to get into show business and the writing area. And one of the ways, uh, which sort of is an easier way to attract attention to your talent, is to write a spec script. And your first one that got you in the door was the spec script for Remington Steel. But the interesting twist is it was one line (laughs) in your Remington Steel script that attracted them to you. Describe that because it's so funny. It's just the way uh, fate works that your success may come from a place you're not expecting it. I I think that's right. I think that uh, writing spec scripts, one of the hardest things about script writing is structure. And I talk about that in, in, in the book. But your sensibility, your voice, that can't be fake. That's something that you bring to it. So I wrote this spec script, and uh, I don't even remember what most of the plot was, but it had an opening of a of a, a costume party where Remington and Laura had been hired to, um, to to look out for a jewel thief. And so Remington had picked the costumes, and he shows up at Sherlock Holmes, and he's got Laura, played by Stephanie Zimbalist, the lovely Stephanie Zimbalist, in a bunny outfit, you know, looking like a rabbit, not like a Playboy bunny. And it turns out that the uh, that the jewel thief. Um, it's very much a Hitchcockian type of video that somebody's been hitting these Beverly Hills parties. He he comes showed up showing up as a carrot and he steals the uh, uh, a, a, a diamond necklace or something and and immediately Remington turns to Laura dressed as a bunny and says stop that carrot and um, so pretty terrible. But the guy who created Remington Steel, um, Michael Gleason, he loved it and he said I had to meet the person who wrote that line and. Um, and so uh, we had a very good meeting, and he said, I'd like to buy that scene. And uh, so my first money in show business was $300 under the table for him to buy that scene, and he grafted it onto a Southern California history uh, costume party, and the line became, stop that, Zorro. I, I didn't care. I mean, his, he also said- You were and, a pro at that point. He said, if the, that's right, but I, I couldn't tell the Guild about that money. It was totally uh, under the table. But he, he said, if the show came back for a second season, I would get a script. And he was good, at, you know, good as, to his word, and the, the show was renewed. I got a script, and like Satchel Paige, I just didn't look back. <laughs> awesome. So um, I want to, you have some great visual aids in your book, and one of them is, is called, I think it's called A Day in the Life, and it's like this chart that illustrates how many episodes in this in the season a showrunner could be needing to focus on on any given given day T- talk more about that the 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 multitasking if you're not a multitasker maybe showrunner isn't isn't the best job for you i, I agree and uh, certainly when, if you're working under more of a broadcast or basic cable uh, or for lack of a better word 13 episode environment because that model was you were writing scripts while you were already in production. So you you begin by writing as many scripts as you can before the cameras start to roll, but then you have to keep writing, uh, especially with a 22-episode season. The general rule was uh, that you would... Um, want to have four or five scripts in some form of a completion, and then you just got to keep going. Um, the uh, the great radio pundit, Fred Allen, he called his uh, autobiography Treadmill to Oblivion. And uh, that, that's kind of what it felt like when you were working on these 22-episode series. So the illustration in the book, and it goes back to, it's, it's interesting how much the business has changed uh, since the beginning of the showrunner training program, which was 19 years ago. But um, over half the class was white guys working in broadcast for the last four years, five years, over half the class have been women. The last two years has been two-thirds women, and uh, broadcast is no longer the dominant 
the dominant form, uh, although it's still, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. But when the program began, I think I probably predicated a lot of the curriculum on this is the second year of a 22-episode show. And so that's what that illustration is about. You're on like episode 10 of, uh, of your season. And what, if you chart through it, and it's, it's exaggerated, but, um, but it, 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 I think that particular showrunner was involved with eight different episodes in the course of the day. There's the show that's shooting. There's the show that you – that the script that you're trying to rewrite. There's the outline of the show that you're working on in the future. And then there's other shows that you have to think about coming up. Then there's the cut that you now have to deliver uh, to – to the studio. There's another cut that you have to deliver to the network, which is at a later state of development. Then there's a cut that's been locked. It's done. All the edits are done, and you have to sit with the composer and, and spot the music. Now, all that is thrilling and, 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 and uh, exciting, but taking it all at once, um, <laughs> there's a showrunner, Liz Friedman, who went through the showrunner program, and she said, after her first job, she said, showrunning is like being beaten to death with your own dreams. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, it... Uh, oh. it uh, uh, that's that's how how we can feel. But you know, it's interesting because that illustration, um, like I said, it's a bit exaggerated, but it reminds me. When I worked on Hill Street, we had a great team of second ads and great extras, and uh, they would constantly be sending these background people through. The, when we were in Hill Street Station, you would see this blizzard of activity, um, constantly things in motion. And I haven't been a reporter and haven't been in a lot of police precincts, <laughs> including New York and San Francisco. Um, Hill Street on its slowest day was more frantic than New York on its most frantic day. And, uh, and yet, I'd hear from cops that say, that's exactly the way it is. And I'd say, no, that's, that's not the way it is. That's the way it feels. And that's our job as, as artists is that's the way it feels. And, and so that, that illustration, even if it's not literally the way a person's day could go, although you can talk to showrunners and they'll say, yeah, there have been days like that, it always feels that way. When you were working on, uh, on Designated Survivor, did you notice the parallels between being the president all of a sudden and having your script picked up and you're the showrunner all of a sudden? Every every emergency is on your desk. Well, I felt more like the designated survivor because I was brought in on episode 11. They'd already fired two showrunners on oh, that show. Oh, you were the but, yeah. actual designated survivor <laughs> so, of designated survivor. That's survivor. a great thing you talk about in the book is coming into a show that is already established even worse, coming into a show that's failing and they're hiring you, you're like, you've got stage three pancreatic cancer. You're bringing you in to be the new uh, <laughs> oncologist. Right. But, but I mean, it, it's it, what a hard position for somebody to be in. It is if you're not prepared to do it. But rather than oncology, I'd say it's more like triage, like like a highway scene where there's been a smash up. And, you're bleeding out. Yeah. And so you got to decide immediately who can be saved, who can't be mm. saved. You know, And you've got to prioritize your patients. Who's, who's got a pulse? Who doesn't have a pulse? Right. Arterial bleeding. Uh, you know, and, and you begin to prioritize. And it's that way with the scripts. When I came on to um, Army Wives, a great show, but they had fired the showrunner after one episode. They had no episodes and they wanted to be back up in 10 days. Um, by that point in my career, uh, based largely on the fact that I loved the show, I saw and I had a chance to see the pilot. It had been cast. I give full marks to whoever did the casting and to Catherine Fouché who created the show. Um, but I saw what it was. I saw what it could be. And I thought, okay, um, I, I don't know uh, if I can do this, but I don't think there's anybody better equipped to do it. There may be people equally well equipped to do this, but I feel I want to do this. And what's the worst that can happen? It'll be over in four months. And uh, you uh, left and came back. Well, that was a different story. I, I we, we we kind of brought the show back to health. And Catherine, who had been really traumatized by the first stretch, uh, was feeling very strongly now about how she wanted to take the show, where she wanted to take the show. And what I told her when I came in was that, look, this is your show. 
I don't want to take it away from you. I just want to put it on its feet. And so uh, a few months later, when it was the number one show on Lifetime and people were really loving it, I wasn't going to change my tune. I actually went to uh, the folks at the executives at Lifetime, who I really respected, and I said, look, um, Catherine wants to take it in this direction. Her idea for finale is not my idea for a finale. I think it's a mistake, but I also think it's her show. And if I were you, I'd go with her. And they said, we agree. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we left on very good terms. And uh, I actually had arranged a, uh, an opportunity to teach at Harvard um, in the next year. So I went to do that. And while I was doing that, two things happened. The Guild went on strike. This was 2007, 2008. So I was actually teaching in Cambridge when uh, uh, when the strike happened. And they went through three showrunners. They fired Catherine pretty early into the season. Um, they fired two other showrunners. I don't know much about the details. I didn't care. But they asked me to come back at the end of that. And uh, I looked at what they had done. And I said, look, uh, I, Joanne Alfano had taken over the network. And I love Joanne. I thought she was very bright. And I said, look, I've looked at all the episodes. This is what I think the mistakes are. This is what I would do to change it. And if you don't agree with me, don't hire me, because that's the only way I know how to, to get the show back on its feet. She took a second, and then she said, when can you begin? And so we got along really well for the next five years. And then she was shifted out of that job, and they canceled it. <laughs> so you, you, you described the, the pressure of a showrunner through the season. Let's talk about the, uh, a description of the work environment for the writers. Say you have a 22-episode season, and talk about the, the, the writer's environment. Uh, how much time is in the room? How many scripts in that 22-season uh, is one writer responsible for? Is all the writing teamwork? Is it a single writer and then the team fixes it toward the end? Ex describe how it works. Those are excellent questions, and there's not one answer that will, you know, each show is does certain things in unique ways. And I got to say that half hour is different than one hour. And, uh, because uh, half hour, traditionally, the room writes pretty much everything, and then somebody's designated to write up the script. And you could have contributed as writer A, 80% uh, to writer B's script. The writer B writes it up, gets his name on it or her name on it, and then the same thing might happen next week. It's a little different in my experience in in one hour. Um, if you have five writers to do 13 episodes, I always try to be as equitable as I can and make sure that each writer, well, let's take a 22-episode season. Let's say six writers. Everybody should do two or three. I mean, you have if they're not proven qualities, you have to be somewhat flexible and say, can, can I give this person more responsibility? But granted that people are working out, everybody's in the room to help break stories. Before production begins, what I call the honeymoon period, um, everybody's in the room. When people break off to write their outlines or write their... Um, their scripts, suddenly the room is depopulated. And so if you have a six-person staff, you could suddenly find yourself with two or three other people, which is why I suggest in the book that don't just assign your scripts in seniority or you'll find yourself left in the room with your youngest <laughs> and least experienced people. Um, you, want it, you want to hopscotch around a bit. But, um, but generally speaking, and again, it has to do with leadership and involvement, you want everybody to buy into every episode. And something I picked up from John Wells is when an outline comes back from the writer and I've gone over it, we go over it in the room and everybody weighs in. Everybody's expected to have read the script and then we go through it page by page or the outline. And the same thing for a script. So, um, you know, people will, and people are, they know the rules. They have to be respectful. They can't criticize without making a suggestion. But, but I'll be Judge Judy about that. You know, they'll say, I think this, this, or this. And I'm going to say, yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea. I'll turn to the writer. I say, what do you think? And if she says, yeah, I could do that, I, fine. 
Or I might say, yeah, I hear you, overruled, let's move on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we just keep going. So you try to get buy-in, you try to give as much individual responsibility as possible. As you can imagine, if there's six people on staff in 22 episodes and somebody's doing six and somebody's doing two, um, there's got to be an explanation. And sometimes there is. I mean, if somebody can't do it. Um, and you talk about this relatively new phenomenon, which apparently has come up in the current negotiations, which is the mini room. Yeah. What is that? It's a terrible term, for one thing. It, uh, it, it makes it sound like mini me. It's small. It's actually, it means that the room, uh, to me, the, the basic description is the room breaks up before production. And mini room's been used to cover a host of sins. I've heard people hired for two to three, two to three people hired for a week to come up with ideas for a creator to pitch. That so mini, a mini is room. a time period. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and it's not even so much weeks. You could have 20 weeks in a mini room. Um, so it what it means is it's not an extended room that runs through production. Mm. So and, is that a cost-cutting maneuver, or what is that? Uh, it seems counter to making the show as good as it could possibly be. I agree. It, it, it has, I mean, at its um, trying to be charitable, the... The film model, and I've talked about how there's been some convergence of uh, the old movie studio model, is if you're only going to do six hours or eight hours, and the British do things this way. When I worked on Killing Eve, that was my first exposure to this, is that uh, you do it in blocks of two. You do what's called cross-boarding so that instead of just doing each episode individually, you take a look at two episodes, and so you try to economize. If we have three scenes in the studio and two occur in one script and one in the next script, you shoot all those scenes at one time so you don't have to come back and set up lights and and do the company move and all of that. Um, So there's cost-saving measures to getting scripts done uh, in advance and then boarding the whole thing and uh, economizing because you have more time to figure out how you're going to shoot it. The, the the problem is that scripts are never done. Um, you know, they'd say, okay, turn in your six scripts or your eight scripts and then go away. And now we turn over to the line producer and the director and the actors and suddenly notes are coming in. Who's left to do those notes? It's usually just the one show and that's the way it began uh, to be abused. And it was way too much work to be done um, by one person. But the, but the mini room, is it a cost cutting measure? Uh, Like I said, to be charitable, it was a way to allow cross-boarding and economizing in production. But in reality, the idea that you don't want to carry writers through and let them observe the process, um, even if you don't necessarily strictly need to write through production – um, that to me is is you know penny wise and pound foolish because you're you're not bringing up the next generation of of showrunners of writer producers you are cutting off their apprenticeship and uh, um, and, and and it really is penny wise and pound foolish and uh, and like I said the idea that the mini room when the mini room is over the writing is over is just not so. Yeah. You you talked about Killing Eve, which was great. Sleeper hit, Sandra O. Oh, lots of people loved it. It just appeared out of nowhere. And you talked for a few sentences about the difference in the British production standards in America. What's the difference in the way an hour is produced in Britain than an hour produced here? The, the fundamental difference is that the, the lead writer there is referred to as the lead writer, not as the showrunner, and is no more or less powerful than like the head of the camera department. You're the head of the writing department. Uh, the director, typically, and the, the studio people have more authority than the lead writer does once the scripts are delivered. Um, another way of looking at it, and this is true not just in the UK, but I've done a fair amount of teaching and seminar leading abroad, is that 
in the United States, and largely because of the force of the Writers Guild, which you can't underestimate, um, the writer is perceived as both labor and management. Uh, outside of the United States, writers are seen as labor only. And the battle that I've talked about with many writer producers um, uh, in the UK and elsewhere is how they can be perceived with any respect as more than strictly labor. They want their place at the table, but as one writer, Emma Frost, put it, uh, who went through the showrunner program, she's a wonderful British writer, um, once you turn in the script, they pat you on the head and say, you go back to the sandbox and the adults will take it from here. And that really is... Um, there's a classicism, a classic, you know, in, in, in England, there's a class uh, nature to it that certainly grew out of the BBC that pertains to that. But there's definitely a paternalistic attitude, but it's hardwired into the culture. And so to try to break that and be perceived as somebody, well, you're the writer. Why should you have anything to say about how we're actually producing? Is this? there a guild for writers over there? There is, but it's not as strong. And, and uh, you know, after Thatcher, the union movement in England was weakened pretty much across the board. But... Uh, wonderful people work at the Guild, and, uh, and and we actually, Emma and I and Jed Mercurio, the guy who did Bodyguard and, and uh, Line of Duty, he, um, we, all, we did a, a, a seminar for the British Writers Guild. So lovely people, but a very different, uh, very different culture. In fact, some of the people there, one of the things I've said about the writers there, because of the British system, it's not unusual to find a British television writer who just came off of writing a radio play, and earlier that year had written a legitimate play, had written a film, had done a piece of journalism. I mean, they, they have to scramble to, uh, to stay alive. And because of that, the originality, the initiative is just remarkable. But the flip side is they're not used to the team play that we do in the United States in writing, so that they kind of got the proud but poor thing. So when you say you're in a room now and you're going to share your idea with Lauren, um, why should I share my idea with Lauren? <laughs> so so there, there was some acculturation that had to go yeah, on. Yeah, they have a survival mechanism or uh, instinct that has driven them. But I have a question that you may not know the answer to, but I have recently been saying that our best American actors are British. <laughs> but you don't see them calling for our guys when they need a British accent. So why is this happening? You know, that's been an issue, I think, for a while. Huh. And it's not just it's not just British. It's South African. It's Australian. Australian it's sure. New Zealand. And, you know, the answer I heard, and, and uh, uh, there's no real good explanation for it, is because they project a certain masculinity and a certain maleness that the... the directors and casting directors were not finding in the American pool. Do not now say that to Steve Bannon. Right. This is going to be a problem. Oh I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not supporting that. They're already tanning their testicles. <laughs> but but you know, whether there's any truth to that or not, um, let's put the most positive to them. There's just some great actors coming out of those places. Yeah, so do they, they teach so, dialects better than we do? Is yeah, that I mean, some of these, like, like the guy from Succession. Oh, wonderful guy. Do you know which guy I'm talking about? I had no idea he was a Brit. And then I watched him on BritBox, on one of the 5,000 shows on BritBox, and he is, he's a Brit. And I thought, there is no modicum of an indication that he's a, a Brit in his succession performance. Right. He just looks like a pain-in-the-ass American guy. And uh, why am I blanking on the name of the woman who played the, 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 the sister in that Yeah, group. she's Australian. Right. Oh, my God. And you, there's no hint. That's, that's a skill. Yeah, I mean, so they're very skilled and they do train. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I think that the story I always liked was uh, on Marathon Man when Dustin Hoffman had to play the scene where he was sleepless and, and exhausted and 
and so he deprived himself of sleep. And uh, apparently Olivier was supposed to have said to him, young man, why don't you try acting? And <laughs> that's, that's probably an apocryphal story, but, but it does represent a little bit of difference. And I even saw that difference in Killing Eve. I mean, Jodie Comer and Sandra Oh are fantastic actresses, uh, actors, I guess we're supposed to say these days, actors. Um, and they have very different approaches, and they're both legitimate. But it was really interesting to watch the different approach. And, and Sandra is definitely more method, and, and, uh, um, and, and Jodie was... Uh, uh, something else. Jo- Jody's a phenomenon. I mean, she's—I think she's a one-off. So it's—I don't want to put her in any camp. But uh, anyway, it was—it was fascinating to watch the two of them. So let's talk about the cubicle farm that exists between writers and showrunners. On Remington Steel, you went from writer to story editor to executive story editor to supervising producer. So what are those steps? And describe the differences in their jobs. Well, the point I try to make overall in the book is that most titles, short of showrunner. Um, regardless of what uh, the title says, you're doing the same job, which is writing and uh, uh, and contributing in the room. And the seniority may have something to say about who gets to speak first and loudest in the room. But in terms of division of labor, um, the, you know, if a hierarchical chart usually looks like a pyramid, and you think that that the owners at the apex of that, and then it kind of goes down uh, through through the ranks, or very much like the military. I've often found on shows, and I'm not endorsing this, but the reality is, and I think writers out there would agree, is that the 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 actual chart looks more like a lollipop on a stick. I mean, the disc is uh, <laughs> there's there's the showrunner, and then there's this you know the horizon that the stick is stuck into, and everybody else is doing somewhat the same thing. I think the most legitimate uh, distinction is the number two. Most every showrunner is going to designate somebody to take over the writers' room when the showrunner can't be there. And that is a genuine responsibility um, that's important. What's the uh, title of that person? Uh, probably George. You know, I mean, it could be a co-executive producer. It could be a supervising producer. One of the things about, I think, a really well-run writer's room is that it's a meritocracy. And I think one of the problems that people make is they, I always been using the military and sports as my analogies in this business. And the problem with, uh, I think, a lot of first-timers is they think that assembling a show is like putting together a military platoon. You got a captain, you got a lieutenant, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have several sergeants, you're going to have then your, your your corporals and your privates. And it's a nice theory, it just doesn't work because to, to mix the, the analogies, it's more like Sandlot baseball. You show up, you say, who's available? Okay, and and then you make your team depending on who's available, or if it's like foot, you know, are you going to, you know, it's it's so okay, you know, we have nobody can hit homers, we're going to play small ball, you know, we're going we're going to do it that way, or whatever you play to the available talent, and and I think that's also you know staying with with uh, with that analogy, you know, money ball is a really important concept. You want to get the biggest bang for the buck, and I would rather have two or three younger writers who are cheap. Um, and eager and have great potential than one writer who I haven't worked with who's experienced and has a higher price tag and is just kind of slumming. I'm doing it because I couldn't get any other work, um, it, uh, uh, just to characterize things. So the, there is, on the best shows, and it's the John Wells method, and a lot of people practice it, uh, Greg Daniels on the half-hour side, Mike Schur, who's a Greg Daniels devotee, and uh, um, you know, the, the thing is, the nice thing is that good people inspire schools of of, of protégés, and uh, um, they will let individuals produce their own episode. Meaning, if you were on my show, 
if it's your script, you get to participate in the casting process. Uh, you get to show up for the production meetings. If we're on location, you get to show up on location for at least a few of those days. Um, I have some kind of a philosophical disagreement with some people about how important it is to have the writer on set. I think it's very important for the writer. I hope it's not too important for the show, because if it is, what's the director doing? <laughs> but uh, but again, that's, that's part of a, a different discussion. But then also you sit in on post, um, you see all the cuts, you go to the mix, and, and so you get you know, a very dimensional view of your own episode. And then beyond that, I also like to deputize people. Like my wife tells me I'm no good with wardrobe. And, and so <laughs> I, I always have to find somebody. Uh, I'll be watching a show. I get so into the story that I'm watching it. And my wife will suddenly say, what is she wearing? And, and, I, and I'll say, what? And she'll look at it. And I, oh, you're right. You know, but I won't notice. So I have to make sure somebody on staff is paying attention to wardrobe. And I do the same thing with other things as well. Um, so, so there is, you know, it, it's, it, there is division of labor. There is apprenticeship being offered. But I think a lot of people would say when push comes to shove, we're all being paid. If you're beneath the showrunner, you're all being paid to, to, to write scripts. That's your number one responsibility. Mm-hmm. Now, you have in your book the 12 Ps. I don't know if you can see my <laughs> right. clipboard, but let's go through these. I don't know how you did this, and, and we're so loyal to one letter of the alphabet, <laughs> but go ahead and describe what, what these roles are that a showrunner is required to um, in embody. Sure. Well, as a teaching device, I found that this was a good way to kind of talk about what another way of describing the job. Producer. Up to this point, you've had this in your title, but you might not have done any actual producing. One of the things we found with people coming up to the showrunner training program today, and you have to be at a certain level. It's a selective master class thing. We get about 190 applicants for 30 spots every year. And we get very talented, accomplished people, but they say, yeah, I'm a co-executive producer. I've never sat in on the edit of an episode. Um, So anyway, you might have had that title, but now you're expected to know what a producer does in television. You're expected to know all phases of production, pre-production, shooting, and post. And if you don't know those things, you've got to find a way to learn. And uh, like anything else in the business, you, certain things you'll do well. Again, going back to sports, like in soccer, there's only about four or five moves in soccer that you need to know as an offensive player. You only really need to do one or two really well. And you, and if you can do it at speed under pressure, you'll be successful. As a showrunner, there's a couple things you may do really well, and then you've got to delegate and find people who can do the other things well. So that's producer. Problem solver. Again, it goes back to what we we're saying about why writers aren't necessarily well suited to be managers. Um, one of the keys of being a manager is trying to decide when things come across your field of vision, is this a problem? Is this a problem that rises to my level of attention? If it does, how urgent is it? What are my options? And what are, what am I going to decide to do? That's just a whole way of thinking that writers only think about solving problems in terms of scripts. Um, and now you've got to be thinking about it on a broader scale. You're a potentate, which means you have power. That was a funny way to keep the P alive. <laughs> but, but, you know, with, as Peter Parker learned, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And when you get your first show, you're going to discover you have more friends than you ever remembered you had before because people want work. And not only do they want work, you'll get calls with people that you might have worked with on a show several years ago who said, my guild insurance is going to run out unless I get another script. Um, can you give me a script? These are real world issues, and you have to be prepared to put on that cloak and not shrink from it. It's, you have to make decisions. So having the power is great, and it's also um, it can be burdensome. Uh, you're a professor. 
you'll think because you wrote a pilot that got picked up that everybody sees it the same way you do. <laughs> and you'll discover uh, to your disappointment that that's not necessarily so. You've got to show them how you want them to write your show. And uh, again, that's a matter of stepping up and realizing, I don't have to say I'm the best writer in the world, but I was hired because of the script I wrote. This is the sensibility that I have to reflect. And as long as you want to work here, you got to do things that reflect my sensibility or things that pass my uh, my filter. Um, and again, so that's another step up in terms of assuming responsibility. And also, uh, if you enjoy teaching and you have people who are open to it, um, that's that's another aspect. You're a psychologist. That's a very sneaky P. But um, you know, motivating people is again something that writers haven't really thought about terribly much. But some people need to be cajoled. Other people need to be nurtured. Other people need to be kicked in the butt. You know, it it depends. And and you also got to think several steps ahead. If I do this, what's likely to happen? And uh, and be making little decision trees in your in your head. You're a politician in the best sense. Uh, politics is the art of compromise. Um, when you have any kind of managerial position involving money and power, you know that you can't win every battle. And so you have to decide um, which battles are worth fighting, which hill you want to die on, and you don't want to spend all that currency too soon. But you've got to be a diplomat and you've got to be moving well between different constituencies. And if you just look at executives as the enemy, uh, you're not going to get terribly far. Um, you're a paradigm in that how you behave sets the example for how you want that show to run. And a lot of what I learned about leadership was when I was coaching eight-year-olds in soccer. And I didn't learn it from coaching the eight-year-olds. I learned it from trying to manage their parents. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, your, your, your daughter, uh, the, a ball goes across the goal mouth. Your daughter takes a swing at it and misses and falls down. It would have been an easy tap in. You have a choice. Um, you can throw down your clipboard and rip off your headphones <laughs> and curse. Or you can say, unlucky, we'll do better next time. And how you behave then models for your parents how you expect them to behave. And it's the same thing on a writing staff. Um, you're a parent. This is really important. Uh, if you create a show, you're literally the parent of everything that follows. Um, if you take over a show, as I have many times, uh, you're a step-parent. And you have to recognize what the differences are. But you're still a parent. And... Uh, being a parent isn't the same thing as being a friend. You hope that your kids are friendly with you down the line, but that's not your primary job. Your primary job is to instill all the qualities you want them to have. You can love them. You don't always have to like them as much in the moment, but but you have to also constantly be reading the patient, not the chart. You know, you want to be making sure that you're being firm when you need to be firm and compassionate when you need to be compassionate. And if you don't want to be a parent, if you say, I didn't take this job in any way to be a parent, um, you're still a parent. You're just a dysfunctional parent. And if, you, <laughs> and, and if you look at what happens on shows where people ignore this responsibility, it's like what happens in a dysfunctional family. Some kids will want to take authority. Some kids will just withdraw. Um, and so it's an important aspect of it. You're a protector in that your first obligation to your writing staff and to your actors and to everyone else is to create a safe environment. Um, in the writer's room, that's an emotionally safe environment and a creatively safe environment. Uh, with the cast, it's the same. Um, with the crew, it takes on a more physical dimension. You know, we've seen problems on set, and we've seen if you're keeping people late and asking people to work overtime and then they have to drive 30 miles back home, as they often do on location shows, you're endangering their health, and you have to, you have to do what's best for your group. You're a priest in that you will hear things from certain people that you never expected to hear. They will come to you to tell you things if you've gained their trust. And you don't want to take on more than your bandwidth can allow. But within reason, I mean, that to me is a privilege when you're in charge and uh, they're telling you things in confidence. Um, 
you know, if you see a writer who's not been performing well lately and, and you invite them in the office and you say, hey, Joe, what's going on? You might be surprised what you hear and you have to be willing to listen. Um, in, in certain cases, and I've had this with certain actors, where the problem goes beyond anything I can solve, if it involves any kind of addictive behavior or abusive behavior, then you you got to help them get the help they need. You've got to get the studio involved. But in many cases, it's, you just have to be uh, a decent listening human being. And then at the end, you're a person. I mean, we've described that it's an impossible job to do well 24-7, and you got to have some compassion for yourself. Um, I think Pauline Kael said, if you want to get a friend in this business, get a dog. But um, <laughs> but but I think we all need people on the outside to keep us balanced. And you need to do what you need to do uh, to maintain your mental and physical health. And that's no small matter. And I think one of the impacts of one of the uh, aspects of more women being involved as showrunners is they've emphasized this to a large degree, the, 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 the work-life balance. It's very important to them that the environment be more humane than the one that they were brought up in. And I applaud that. Mm, that's so interesting. Well, I got to tell you, if you have any aspirations to writing for television, the thing I loved about your book was it was just it wasn't, um, um, you know, uh, looking through the, you know, the sepia tone lens of how beautiful television was and is now. It's it's very practical. And, and I, I love that you started the book out with your personal experiences and then got to the primer, the instructional part in the end. And it's really it was a fun, fun read. And you have great little catchphrases that I will never forget. One is show up, shut up, which I can't wait to tell my kids when I get home tonight. The other one is Jeff Bezos, the Stalin of streaming. <laughs> well, it, it, describe that description. Well, it's just because Amazon has uh, just such unlimited resources that just like Stalin could afford to throw a lot of troops at, uh, at the front line and not be concerned about the carnage. Uh, uh, Amazon can just throw millions, literally millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars uh, at the wall and, and, until something sticks. And so that asymmetry we talked about earlier, uh, they, they have the ability to do that. I happen to, to know some folks who worked on Citadel, this, the second most expensive show in Amazon's history. And the stories I heard, which I can't repeat because they were told to be in confidence, but it would curl your hair. And, and, it, and it's obscene also. It's obscene the amount of money that just patently was wasted. Waste. You'll never see it. Stuff was shot, never used, and um, it's really a shame. Especially, it seems like we're reaching critical mass with the number of streaming services too. The, the, the herd has to be thinned soon, don't you think so? Absolutely. Well, it's funny. John Landgraf Jr., who had coined the phrase uh, "peak TV." Uh, which was like five or six years ago at least, he, he felt he was describing a phenomenon that would then decline. It peaked. That's why he said it. And it, instead of peaking, it just, instead of declining, it just kept peaking. It and so we, <laughs> it did. That's a good way of well, putting I think, it. I think the streaming it has that addictive nature that, you know, we first experienced with our phones where, you know, you could be talking to someone very interesting and, and, and be physically trying to suppress the urge to look at your phone. So it definitely has an addictive power, and I think the ability to watch the next episode and the next episode keeps peak at peak. Right. It also keeps them, it insulates them, the, the subscription model uh, as, as opposed to uh, the, the broadcast model. Um, means as long as there's one thing you want to watch, you're going to keep watching and you're going to keep your subscription up. Whereas, you know, the, the networks are able to say, well, that show didn't work and that show didn't work. But but I think that, uh, 
you know, what were, I, I lost my thread. We were well, talking. at one point, we, you know, Johnny came on. Fritz told you the weather. Then Johnny came on, and then it's time to go to bed. Right. You know what I mean? But like, TV never ends. Right. There's no reason to go to bed. <laughs> well, I know what I was going to say is that at, at, going into this past year, it was estimated there was many as 600 scripted shows being written for the American audience. And I remember uh, we have a keynote address every year. Uh, for the uh, beginning of the showrunner training program. And Peter Roth from Warner Brothers uh, gave it several years. He was great. And I'd worked with him uh, at Fox. And um, he, this goes back many years now, he said, I used to make a point of watching one episode, at least one episode of every show that was on the air. Now think about doing that today. Oh, no. And and by the way, I had to describe in the book for the benefit of readers who were born after the Reagan administration what what TV Guide is, you know? Yes, that was 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 great. (laughs) It was possible that that, that, uh, you could describe everything that was on the air. But I I was talking to John Wells and others, and if we're at a peak of around 600 now, uh, some people are predicting that very quickly it's going to be 300 scripted series. Now, I expected that we would have seen the decline rather slowly, but I think between the strike and also what's now been revealed to be this lemming behavior of all these people chasing Netflix off a cliff. I mean, that used to be seen as, oh, that's the way up the mountain. That's the way to Mount Sinai. And now it looks like, you know, that's the way into the Red Sea with the waters uh, coming in after (laughs) you. You know, know, I remember having a discussion with my boss about how streaming was going to be in the future. And he said that the show that flipped the script on streaming was House of Cards. That's correct. And he said the reason why is it was the first time that, uh, that the business model changed. That is... Netflix did a did a purchase for I don't know how many episodes they did t- ten or twelve episodes, and they got paid for their episodes. So ratings had nothing to do with it. Views had nothing to do with it. The production company got their pay up front. There was no downside to any of it. Now it was just Netflix trying to sustain their viewership. Well, the, well, the interesting thing about about that is that after the success of that show, Netflix learned a lesson. They produce their own shows now. They didn't produce that show. They had to pay the company for that. Mm-hmm. And but another so and, and did you remember when that came on the air? Do you know how long it's been since streaming started? No. Two thousand thirteen. It's only been ten years and look at what's happened to the business in ten years. It's so much feels longer now. Yeah. And and uh, uh, so not only did it have an impact on consumer behavior and the whole business model. But from my perspective, there's another big cultural difference is that when you read about that show, Bo Willeman, the playwright, had written it, and he got his fair amount of press. But so did David Fincher. I mean, so again, what goes hand in hand with that phenomenon is suddenly the director and the writer mm. are getting equal billing. More like in film. Yeah, and what happened with... Um, uh, Kevin Spacey. The, 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 the detective, uh, what was the thing that was on HBO? Um, oh, Michael Chiklis? Yeah. No, no. The no, Shield? No, not The Shield. It was on, oh. on HBO, the... Uh, um, True Detective? True Detective. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was the one. Um, again, the director of that first season, Corey Fukunaga, who, or however you pronounce his name, um, who went on to do a Bond film, he got tremendous press. And then the next year, same writer, who's a terrific writer, but the show did not do as well. And... Um, that was all about casting, that show, was Well, that had a lot to do with it, but it's also a little bit like the Brady-Belichick argument. I mean, so, you know, Bel- you know Brady leaves the, the Patriots, and suddenly uh, Brady keeps winning, and Belichick doesn't. So the question was, in that particular pairing, well, gee, the director's not there, and now the show's not doing so well. So the perception is, oh, I guess we know where the, 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 the difference is. I don't think it's that simple at all. No, I think it's, it's a hard. different storyline in Yeah, it, it was, and yeah. it's very hard to replicate, and, and I think that um, I think that's... But that the sex- pairing on that show really had to be right, I thought. 
Yeah. I mean, that first season was remarkable. Yeah. And it's very hard to replicate that sort of thing. Right. It's like it's like genie in a bottle or magic. Yeah. Whatever the phrase is, it's like that. <laughs> that was Lightning it. in a bottle. <laughs> Something you don't have often, it's like that. <laughs> so you, um, how did it feel to lay it all out for all of us? Did it help you better understand what you do to synthesize it and present it? Yes, and it still does. I mean, I still go back. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, to me, the showrunner training program and teaching at USC, I teach in the, in the Stark program and, and doing, I've worked with the, uh, the Film Institute of Cologne doing some seminars there and I've talked to other people, each one of these educational experiences and I, and I tell people this, I get as much back from it as I put into it. But, but writing it, I mean, I was taking notes since 2014 on this and, um, and sometimes it would be the equivalent of a digital scrap of paper that just had three lines on it. In fact, I just came across one that I forgot to put in the book. Uh, was talking about judo. I often think that that in terms of dealing with uh, executives, that rather than trying to, you know, if you try to box somebody, one of you is going to go down if you stop. But you, in dealing with it, it's like judo. You want to take somebody's momentum and put it in a place that works for you. And um, and you know, I. I that's one of those things that I just wrote down in the stream of consciousness, and I don't think it showed up in the book. It'll show up in the next one, but um, you know, th- so it was, it, it was consolidating a lot of these things, and um, and, and and I really enjoyed it much more than I anticipated. So when you taught at Harvard and you're teaching at USC now, um, you know the, the the marketplace kind of dictates the tastes of the youth. What are kids writing? What are kids drawn to? What what? Which style? That, that's a great question. Um, my the Peter Stark program strictly is, for, or technically, is for producers. It's the Peter Stark producing problem, but a number of program, but a number of them want to write and or direct in some capacity. And even if they don't, my attitude is you need to understand how to think like a writer so you can give notes that are writer friendly. So I give them some very clear assignments that are broken down. I'm not asking them to write scripts based on what's in their head. I'm giving them assignments like I talk about. Uh, I, I use a book written by Alan Armour, who was a great teacher at Cal State Northridge, and uh, he wrote a wonderful book uh, called Screenwriting uh, Television and Writing the Screenplay, Television and Film, I think, and uh, full of practical advice because he actually taught, whereas opposed to a lot of writing books are written by people who have never taught. They just uh, needed to write a book. And um, uh, so if you, decide, if you define, define a, a story as a person with a problem, we begin the class by saying, okay, here's three different types of people. Pick one of them and find a problem for that person. And then here's three different problems. Find a character to meet one of those problems. And that's the beginning of trying to think like a professional writer, in my opinion, because that's what you do all the time. So I'm, it's not, so I can't say from, I always look at what they're reading and what they're listening to uh, and I do my own little survey of them at the beginning so I get a chance a sense of where they're coming from and the disparity of interest is remarkable out of a class of 24 and they're from around the world you're lucky if you see the same shows films music show up on more than two or three people's oh things but what's fascinating to me and what was I was concerned to me because I really have respect for these kids and I want to make sure that that I reach the students where they live is a lot of my examples based on my experience and things that I think make great teaching are old you know I would I, I use a, a fair number of films and TV shows and um, with very few exceptions I'm, I'm looking at them and say these are all at least 10 years old some of them are much older 
And the thing that I was very much rewarded by, because I kept checking in with the students, is, is this reaching you? And they were. They, they loved it. I mean, among the things I'm talking about is uh, Twilight Zone, Lilies of the Field, On the Waterfront, In the Heat of the Night. You know, so these are, these are, are classics. Story and, is story. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and the thing is, I think that, I do think that storytelling has been somewhat obscured in recent times by other things. And, um, and I kept looking for, I, I went through the Academy Awards for the last 15 years trying to find examples that I think could hold up as well and be as good for teaching and things that I had a personal feel for. And I was very hard pressed. I finally found us, oh, Slumdog Millionaire. I said, oh, that's way over 10 years old. You know, it's like, I was, I was surprised. Right. But it would be like saying, well, let's find a, like a, a more interesting president than Abraham Lincoln to talk about. That's, well, a, good, you know. <laughs> that's a good point. What's, why? Yeah. We can still talk Right. You know, and a great is great. So that's I, a really good point. And yeah. You can extract lessons of leadership from 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 his administration. Absolutely. Th- that one of my favorite forever. things about your book is, and it kind of covers um, the advice I've given to students who intern with us over at NBC for a while, or anybody getting into the business. I, I say, the the you have to develop a tough skin and be able to take criticism in any aspect of this business in my business as being a weather forecaster i i would always say the key to being a successful uh, television weather forecaster is being able to suffer public humiliation gracefully <laughs> but i in your book I, one of the favorite parts of your book was looking that you put a remington steel script at the end of the book and the one and that notes. had notes that yeah. you were obviously given by one of your superiors by michael gleason the creator wow it's so cool. you know it, some of them were really interesting but i thought if this was mine i would i would you know i want to put my head on a railroad track <laughs> if you got that it. back from a teacher you yeah, know your mother wow. would be saying but like it's really Maybe there's a better investment than college for this child. (laughs) Well, the thing that redeemed that was by the end. You know, I I chose a couple pages, select pages, and at the end he said, "Wow, this is a great idea. If we did this earlier, this could be a great episode." So he found what was good about it. But but um, I I loved the show. I loved Michael, and I knew that it wasn't attacking me personally. He really just had such passion for the material. Now, Mm -hmm. if you did that today in today's environment, I think you'd get a lot of blowback about trigger, you know, microaggression and, and triggers. <laughs> right. and, 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 and human resources prison. <laughs> Do you have to respond to each one of their notes? What if you disagree with one? Can you go in and argue for your point? You know, taking notes is, uh, uh, is an art, not a science. And uh, my chapter is called, We Have a Few Notes on Executives. <laughs> and, and, I, and I have said at various times, if there was anything that would drive me out of show running, it would be notes. And not necessarily the quality of the notes, but the quantity of the notes. I mean, it's just, they're so endless, depending on who you're talking to. But the basic smokescreen for taking a note, the advice is you don't have to answer in, usually notes are given in a phone call uh, with several people on the line. And you'd hope that people could write them down because often that would force more discipline and they could see sometimes the error of their ways. But you take it on on the phone call and you don't have to respond in the moment. I know at least one showrunner says, you know, I'm not going to respond at all. I'm going to listen to everything and I'll respond later. That's fine. But the placeholder that people use is, let me think about that. Now, if you mean it, that's a legitimate way to say, I will get back to you. But then you owe it to the executive to get back to them and say, we tried to work on it, didn't work, here's why, but I did like this other note. And at the same time, if they give you a note that actually can help, uh, it's your obligation to let the executive say, hey, thanks for that note. That really is helping us. But if you say, let me think about it, um, and what you're really saying is there's no way in hell I'm ever going to take that <laughs> note, 
the executives know it, and that does not create a good, healthy relationship. Because in the best sense, an executive is your first audience. And just like a psychiatrist or psychologist will tell you, you don't have to defend your own feeling. You just have to defend how you act on your feeling. If somebody, if somebody says to you, um, gee, I found this slow, what are you going to say? You're wrong? You know, that's their feeling. And, and You know what Oprah would say? I'm going to pray on it. <laughs> really? Yeah. So try that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to wrap up because our, our time is running short. So I, I would love for everyone to go get Jeff's book. It is called Running the Show. You will find it on Amazon and wherever you purchase your books. And we want you to go get the book. It's fantastic. It's funny. It's fun to read. There's a lot of great wisdom and great information for and anybody. And really honest. It's not very, fluffing anybody. Very <laughs> honest. For anybody interested in any kind of writing or any kind of creativity, the, the rules really apply in, in so many, just like improv rules, yes and. You know, it's a book where that celebrates us celebrating one another. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod. And on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that so much. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter. Comes out only once a week, doesn't bother you otherwise, at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Jeff Melvoin. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.